and welcome to today's podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Carol Cartwright. Dr. Cartwright has served as a Dean for Undergraduate Programs and Vice Provost at Penn State University and as the Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of California at Davis. In 1991, Dr. Cartwright became the 10th President of Kent State University and the first female president of that institution, as well as the first female president of a state university in Ohio. Cartwright served as Kent State's president from March 1991 to July of 2006. In July of 2008, she became the interim president of Bowling Green State University and was appointed president on January 2009. She retired from Bowling Green State University on June, in June of 2011, and today she is currently the co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. The discussion will start with best practices between boards and presidents. Dr. Cartwright, thanks so much for joining us on this, what I hope will be a very interesting discussion, wide ranging, mostly because of your career in college athletics and, and also in higher education. So I'm going to start off with a really basic question. Please share with us your observations concerning best practices between a president and their board of trustees. That is a very complicated question, but <laughs> let me, let me uh, get started on it anyway, and we'll probably circle back to it in other parts of our conversation. Uh, I think first we have to understand that each party has a very important role. The board is responsible as fiduciaries for the health, vitality, and sustainability of the institution. And they rely on the president to lead and manage the operational details on a day-to-day -day basis. So it has to be a partnership. And of course, strong partnerships are built on trust. You earn that trust as you, as you work together I think one of the hallmarks of building that trust and being able to work together as good partners with each understanding their respective roles is to always be very transparent. I mean, the, the president should not be keeping things from the board, should be sharing things that are both opportunities and problems. Uh, the board should understand that the president doesn't work for any individual on the board but works for the board as a board because it's that corporate entity of the board that is the fiduciary for the institution. So it's a, when it works well, it's a beautiful, beautiful dance. <laughs> when it doesn't, it looks a little clunky. Uh, I think the, the key is to really understand that, that each partner, uh, the board and the president has a critically important role. And when they can come together around a shared sense of mission and vision and strategic priorities, then it's likely to proceed very, very successfully and effectively. And just so I'm clear, in the two universities that you were president of, how big were the boards? How many people were on the boards? It was set by state law. There were 11. Okay. And a, a new person was appointed each year by the governor. So there was always the turnover of one, unless somebody became ill or left the state, for example. Uh, so it was 
it was usually a very stable group and that was the same for all the ohio institutions okay okay so and that's by the way the the median size of a board of public universities across the united states is 11. Um, independent institutions private institutions tend to have much larger boards yeah is there any particular reason for that well, the, the private institutions have larger boards because the fundraising function is included and they're, they're looking for individuals who can support them philanthropically and they have the right to select their own trustees. Understood. In the public sector, there are separate organizations that are the philanthropic arm of the institution and those foundation boards at public institutions tend to be quite large okay. for the same reason. Okay, that makes sense. So tell us a little bit how your role as president, how you've worked with trustees and helping them or allowing them to fulfill their fiduciary and oversight roles. Well, I think it's important to note that uh, the people who are appointed for these trustee roles are extremely talented individuals. They come uh, from various backgrounds, but they bring a lot of experience uh, to the board table. On the other hand, they don't know that much, generally speaking, about higher education. So it's up to the president to make sure that the, the larger context and the important history and traditions of higher education uh, are shared. Fiduciary duties are fiduciary duties, whether you're sitting on a corporate board or on a university board, uh, the duty of care, uh, which means that you make decisions uh, with all thoughtful due diligence and in the best long-term interest of the institution, that's the same. But the context in which you're making those uh, decisions is quite different. And I think it's important for presidents to take some time uh, to orient new members and to engage in some ongoing conversation with the entire board about uh, the, the nuances that come into that fiduciary duty because it is higher education. Um, it's not a business, although there are some aspects of the institution that have to run like a business, like a transportation center or dining services, for example. Uh, but when you come to the core purpose of the institution, the education and research, um, it's not like anything most board members have ever seen. They don't understand academic freedom. They don't understand shared governance. Uh, they're they're willing to learn and it's important I think for the president to help them who is an expert in higher education uh, it's important for the president to help them see how those fiduciary duties fit into the context of a higher education institution so that they can be effective as trustees that's and that's it's an really, ongoing process yeah I would think so I mean that's I had not really thought about that that piece of how do you onboard somebody onto onto a trustee group but can you talk a little bit about what those conversations look like are they one-on-one -on -one? are they in small teams how does that work well i think it works differently at different institutions uh, you certainly uh, want to uh, assure everyone that they fully understand the fiduciary duties of care and of loyalty and of obedience so some basic grounding in the in the foundation principles is important. I think you also want them to understand what are their key roles and responsibilities, um, where 
is it important for the board to have the decision making and where is it important for them to be able to feel comfortable delegating that to the president mm -hmm. and obviously if there are issues with respect to the finances the mission the academic programs key policies you want the board to understand that those are their decisions that you and your staff will prepare them to think about the decisions they need to make but to help them also understand that that that's at the end of the day their responsibility in the context of athletics for example uh, you wouldn't want the board hiring a head coach that would be something that would be delegated by the president to the athletics director but if you were going to change conferences for example mm -hmm. that would be squarely in their fiduciary duty and you would want the board uh, to be a part of that if you were going to add new programs or drop programs that would be the sort of decision that would need to come to the board and there's obviously a kind of gray zone there between what is governance and what is management and sometimes it just takes a few examples uh, to work through it it's not an exact science there's a little bit of art to it as well yeah i, I would think so some, sometimes you, it, you bring go oh, sorry go ahead well, I was just going to say, in addition, in an orientation, you also want to be sure that new members understand your institution, that they understand some basic principles about higher education, like self-regulation through accreditation, academic freedom, um, shared governance, et cetera, uh, autonomy, uh, but that they also understand your institution, uh, its mission, its core values, its array of academic programs. Uh, if it's a research institution, uh, the, the research uh, components, the service components. And, and as I said, it, it can't happen all in a day. Uh, obviously, you, you have to begin somewhere, and then you continue to build on it. Some institutions will have a, a more experienced trustee serve as kind of a partner or a mentor for new trustees. It takes about a year to get through the rhythm of the kind, the way that decisions come out of board and to begin to really understand uh, how the whole process works in the partnership with the president and in relation to these fiduciary duties. I think that's a, a, a really thorough explanation. And I would think that it's, a, as you talked about that trust factor between a president and a board, knowing that what you're bringing to them is appropriate for them to make a decision on, be aware of, and what you're not bringing to them, they should trust that you've made the right decision. Does that come across fairly often? Uh, yes, I think so. And at the core of all that is a, a commitment to each other that there won't be any surprises. Right. And of course, while we don't need to go into a lot of details, I, I think everybody uh, immediately brings to mind some major cases that have been in the news in the last few years where boards kept things from presidents and then surprised them with a, a termination request or a, a retirement request or where a president kept something from a board that ended up being a huge reputational uh, issue for the institution. So being open and transparent about all the good things, but also the kinds of things that keep you awake at night is very important. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, you worked in two 
small communities in Ohio, in Kent and in Bowling Green. Talk a little bit about the role that Division I athletics played in those communities and what the president's role was in all that. Well, I think although um, the communities were themselves fairly small, they were very close to major population centers. So you have to think about it in that broader geographical context. Uh, athletics was an important part of both institutions uh, in terms of an opportunity for students to participate both in athletics programs and as spectators, and also to build relationships with alumni and community members. Both of those schools are members of the Mid-American Conference, and the conference has a strong reputation, a long-standing reputation of really understanding its place and its values. I mean, we sit in the middle of the Big Ten, uh, but we're not trying to be the Big Ten. We want to be the best that we can be in the tier that's right for us. And both institutions were proud to be a part of Division One, which used to be called 1A and is now called FBS. Uh, because of the competitive opportunities that our student athletes had. Uh, on the other hand, we don't have the resources of schools in the Big Ten and didn't really aspire to behave like they behave. I would say that we, over the years, we developed some very good partnerships with the Big Ten. Uh, some referee training, for example, that we did collaboratively and built up quite a nice tradition of uh, scheduling football games in the in the early stages of a season when um, schools are looking for out-of-conference opportunities. Uh, the Big Ten typically schedules a lot of MAC schools uh, across all of the schools in the conference and all of their schools. And it's a great opportunity for students and fans alike uh, to have that, that experience. But the experience at the institutions is, is also a very, very good experience uh, because I think of the commitment to mission and values. Uh, just to make the point a little bit stronger, you know, we in the MAC know that we can be very good and very competitive and that bigger schools will look to us for their head coaching talent. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a, a coach who becomes successful, uh, they're likely to be lured away by a bigger school with a, and when I say bigger school, I, I don't mean that in terms of enrollment because Kent State, for example, is about 40,000 students, so plenty big, but um, bigger in the sense of, of the athletics programs. So we know that the, the coaches are, are going to be lured away as they become very successful. And we don't try to compete. We don't try to match those million dollar salaries uh, because that's not who we are and that's not the resource base that we have to run our programs. Interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the, the fact that the, the Ohio uh, schools will play each other in the non-conference schedule. I think there's some a bit of a loyalty to trying to keep the fans together and you know you have the students who went to high school together but now have gone to different universities and want that rivalry experience to have. It's kind of a neat way to embrace that. Yeah, it's a very good point. And you, you see that mingling after the game, regardless of who wins. They're 
seeking out each other and looking to to say hello. Exactly. So obviously uh, you have to deal with faculty and faculty governance issues. And were there times in your presidencies where faculty governance issues collided with athletic department procedures or desires or wishes? Looking back on it, I don't think so. Uh, we worked hard to be sure there was open communication and good transparency. And I think that served us well. At Kent State, for example, we had a faculty budget committee. That wasn't the exact title, but it was a faculty-based committee that participated in um, the development of institutional budgets and uh, evaluating them. And eventually, of course, it's the board's decision and the president is recommending uh, to the board. But we treated the athletics budget just as we would treat any other budget in terms of its development and affirmation. And so the faculty on that committee had full access to all of the facts and circumstances as those budgets were being developed. And then there was a faculty-based athletics committee as well that looked at any number of issues, academic support, uh, any number of policy issues. And I think because we were so open and transparent about what we were trying to accomplish, how much resource we were willing to devote to it, uh, what the data showed about how effective we were being, I think we had a, a successful relationship. For example, I don't know if they still do this, but I had a practice whereby we would keep the athletics spending within a certain range of the overall institutional spending. It was between three and 4%. And as long as we could show any infusion of new dollars were within that range, the faculty committee was quite willing to publicly support what we were doing. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. We did um, have a we did have a situation where uh, early in my tenure, uh, we we were concerned about uh, resources, and we did a major review of our sports programs to determine uh, if we had the right array. And the committee came back with a recommendation that we cut two programs, and that was um, a politically charged environment and set of conversations around that decision, not because of faculty, uh, but just in general. Uh, one of the programs was ice hockey, which had just recently been elevated from a club sport. And the, the committee basically said when it was elevated, there was no financial plan to go with it and you really can't afford it. So before you get in too deep, you ought to consider going back to club status. Well, a, a lot of people, mostly students who had never even been to an ice hockey game, decided that that was gonna be their, their cause and got quite vocal about it. At the end of the day, the board approved the recommendation because it was the right thing to do and there was a strong rationale behind it. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to suggest that everything was always all roses, but in terms of faculty relationships around the athletics programs, um, I think we had it uh, in, a, in a good good shape and, and it worked well. 
Well, that, that's, uh, that's, that's great. That's, that's wonderful. And let me just then, you know, bridge to another question, which talks about the always and never ending competing priorities for, for facility funding for both athletics and academics. Uh, were there any special requirements that the board and you decided to place on one or the other saying things like, well, you have to have 50% of the private funding in hand before we'll allow you to break ground or how did you prioritize the ever demands for new facilities? We didn't have rules like the ones that you're suggesting, but uh, as I've said earlier, we treated the development of new facilities for athletics, just like we would treat the development of new facilities for anything on the campus. And the state had some rules about uh, how we could use state capital dollars for certain projects and not for others. And we were not allowed to use state capital dollars for um, student spaces like student centers, student mm -hmm. recreation centers, that sort of thing, um, or for athletics programs. So we had to, uh, we had to find other funding, uh, private funding or savings from other projects in order to devote to those. We didn't do a lot of construction. Uh, we did a lot of renovation uh, that we had to plan for through our regular budgeting process, but we didn't do a lot of new building uh, while I was there. We did, uh, when I was at Bowling Green, we did construct a new convocation center, which is also the place uh, where they play basketball. And that was the result of a, a very generous donor gift that was the lead gift and then a number of other gifts. But we had to go to the student body for a, an increase in a student fee to pay for the rest of it. And that meant uh, a referendum uh, by the student body about whether or not they were willing to pay the fee. And I personally worked with student government to, to mount that campaign and assure that we had a successful uh, fee package and that it was supported by the students mm -hmm. because that center was used for a lot more than basketball. So different states have different processes and different priorities. I think the fundamental principle is to be sure that you treat those projects as you would treat other projects. That, that they're sense. not out of the normal way of doing business. That seems to me to be where people get in trouble around athletics, not just on facilities, but on, on other things as well. Mm -hmm. it, it really is important to try to stay within the normal practices of the institution and to remember that at the end of the day, uh, the board has to be convinced by the due diligence uh, that this is a decision that's in the best interest of the institution long-term. That's a really great point because again, that allows you to help the board see their their responsibilities very clearly and in alignment with their fiduciary responsibilities. It'd be easy to get excited, uh, for example, at the University of North Dakota a number of years ago, a big donor came up with $100 million and he wanted to build a new ice hockey arena. And you can see how that kind of gift might skew priorities or skew 
how the where things fall in the in the list of what gets built next have you ever been around a situation where you've had an alum a donor come in and say i really want to get this program started and it didn't have to be in athletics no i've not personally experienced that but i certainly know of institutions that have and the key there is uh, does it fit within our mission i mean it's a great way to launch a new program but if it's something that you're not going to be able to sustain or it's just completely out of character uh, with the mission of the institution, then the right thing to do if you can't persuade the donor to redirect the funds is to say, no, thank you. Uh, but for the most part, these are not significant issues because donors and institutions are building a relationship along the way. And you typically would not have major surprises like that. Right, right, right. So you talked a little bit about student fees. You talked about the, the guidelines that states like Ohio provide for, um, for state-supported schools. What concerns do you have about the continued decline of state support for schools like Kent and Bowling Green and the impact that might have on athletics and on students? Well, I think it's an issue around the country. Um, different states have different histories here, but uh, especially since the Great Recession of 2008, uh, we're only just now beginning to see some restoration to levels prior to that. So it's, it's, I certainly wouldn't single out um, Ohio or, or the two institutions that I served in Ohio. It's an issue that is concerning uh, across the United States because the, the problem, of course, is that it still costs to deliver the education. And if it's not going to come from state support, then it's going to come from tuition. And as you know, there's a lot of pressure right now to keep tuition under control uh, because of a lot of concern about student debt. So it's, it's a complicated relationship and it involves being clear about mission and priorities and be, being willing uh, to say we're going to focus on this and not that. Uh, and in the context of athletics, I think that means, you know, we're going to focus on athletics at this level of support relative to the rest of our budget. And we're not going to let things run totally out of control just because it's athletics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a discipline around staying focused on mission and priorities. And I mentioned earlier, when coaches get lured away, uh, we, we don't compete with million dollar packages because that would be out of the resource base that we have. And as much as it's sad to lose a very successful coach, uh, sometimes you just have to say, blessings on you, we wish you well in your in your next post. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I'm sure that's hard for fans to hear, but certainly understanding why the president has to have their eyes on the larger vision of the institution. Sometimes that's just, just the way it goes. And right. um, it's, it's, right. it's, 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 I can imagine that would be a very difficult situation. Right. And it, 
even trustees become fans. <laughs> what you want to be sure is that yes. that 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 being a fan is always tempered by being a fiduciary. But yes, they can fall in love with a coach and and be unhappy to see that individual leave for another institution. But um, if you've done the right kind of ongoing board partnership and board development, they know that there are limits to what can be spent uh, to maintain a coach or to invest in athletics. Yeah, no surprises, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, no surprises. <laughs> so That was Carol Cartwright, former president at Kent State and Bowling Green Universities. She is currently the co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. As some of you are aware, there have been a number of scandals involving people and authorities around athletics and academic programs. One of those scandals is involving Ohio State University and the former team doctor, a guy named Richard Strauss. An article came out recently that talked a little bit about the one coach who spoke up repeatedly to senior administrators about the concerns that her athletes had regarding the behavior of this doctor. Um, unfortunately, those concerns fell on deaf ears and Charlotte Remenick has now passed away. But I wanted to share with you an, an article that I wrote, read that, that really spoke to uh, what can happen when an institution just doesn't listen to the people that are most in charge of taking care of. This story is from NBC.com and it's from Corey Szymansko. Quote, she watched out for her guys. Former Ohio State University fencing coach Charlotte Remenick was one of the very few school officials to formally sound the alarm about Dr. Richard Strauss during the nearly two decades that he molested hundreds of young male athletes and students, often under the guise of a medical examination. Her warnings can be found in records uncovered by investigators with a law firm hired to conduct an independent investigation into Strauss. In fact, Remenick regularly warned her athletes about Strauss and was so persistent that the doctor personally complained about her to the top brass at Ohio State. Strauss wrote in a letter dated in 1996, the reason for the persistence of this rumors in the fencing team became clear, a personal and continuous vendetta against me by Coach Remenick, Strauss said. Approximately once a year, Coach Remenick took various members of the team aside and told them to, quote, watch out for me, unquote, citing rumors. Strauss's redacted letter was included in a damning report released last year by Perkins and Cole law firm hired by Ohio State to conduct an independent investigation, which concluded that coaches and administrators knew that Strauss was sexually abusing athletes and students, but failed to stop him. She was a hero, said Stephen Snyder Hill, a Strauss victim and one of the leaders of the drive to hold Ohio State accountable. She was the only one who formally stood up. Remenick is also the only former Ohio State coach named in the report. She appears on page 92 as a person who raised concerns about Strauss in 1994. Remenick's report, though, was not based on, on rumors, said her da daughter, Scylla Smith. Among the fencers who told Remenick directly that Strauss had crossed the line was her future son-in-law, Kevin Smith. Scylla said he went in to be treated for a torn earlobe, and the first thing he said was to drop his trousers. 
Smith said about her husband. Kevin refused and told my mother what happened. Investigators found that Strauss continued to treat members of the fencing team and male athletes from a dozen sports at Ohio State. And Remenick, who died in 2011 at the age of 77, continued to warn her fences to watch out for Strauss. Articles like this bring in stark reality that what happens oftentimes in athletics is remote and behind closed doors. And we need to be aware and constantly monitoring when student athletes tell us that something is wrong in a relationship between a person in power and a person who's just trying to compete and get through the day. Listening to coaches in these kinds of situations is important. Listening to athletes in this situation is very important. And it pays, uh, it's worth the price as coaches and administrators to listen to see what's going on. This has now happened at Michigan State. This happened at Penn State. It's happened at the University of Southern California. And these are some of our preeminent institutions in the country. We've got to have a better sense of how to manage sexual assault before it gets to well over 150 athletes like it did at Ohio State. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.